Hello and welcome to another lockdown edition of The Bunker, the politics podcast that seeks to social distance from Brexit. I'm Dorian Linsky. On this week's edition, could coronavirus force as fundamental a change to the UK economy as the Second World War? With the government spending record amounts of money to save our businesses and jobs, we look at whether coronomics is here to stay. Meanwhile, the election that time forgot. The Labour Party is almost certain to crown Keir Starmer as leader this weekend. What will the handover from Corbyn look like and can the party contribute meaningfully to solving the corona crisis? Labour MP for Bristol North West, Darren Jones, is on hand to give us the insider's take. And with Corona shining a huge spotlight on the state of the NHS, did the government really ignore a clear warning of what a pandemic just like this could mean? All this and more in this week's edition of The Bunker. Before we start, a reminder that we're doing a free live stream of The Bunker versus our big brothers and sisters at Romaniacs on Thursday night to replace our cancelled live show at about five past eight, right after the whole country finishes applauding the NHS. We're ironing out the logistics now, so follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod to find out how to join in. And don't forget The Bunker Daily on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, the days when the main podcast doesn't come out. So let's say hello to our guests in their various lockdown locations across the UK. Back in the bunker, it's Atlantic staff writer and author of the book Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights, Helen Lewis. Hello, Helen. How have you found week one? Uh, well, I kind of feel like I started earlier than everybody else because uh, as various things got cancelled, I ended up working from home for like two weeks longer than everyone else. So I feel like I've been, I'm kind of ahead of the curve on having gone through the stage of kind of grief and then madness. And then now I'm back in non-elasticated waistbands again because I've decided that you, you either give in to coronavirus and um, in terms of your like just putting on loads of weight and sitting around eating chocolates or you try and valiantly to pretend that everything is still as normal and yet you're mysteriously just sitting in your house all day. Well, not to say that, that authors are, are on the front line here and of course there are, there are bigger problems in the world but, but presumably you had like a whole kind of your whole uh, sort of book tour, you work on a book for ages then you have a whole tour and you're ready to go out and talk to this person, that person, the other and the whole thing just kind of shut down. Are you trying to make me cry, Dorian? Is that no, what? You're... No, no, I, no, no. I just wondered. Have you been? Have you been? Have you been zoom? Have you been zooming people with? Uh, no, it's with, it's completely new insights. to everything. I actually had to have a really sad moment where I went through and and, and individually one by one nuked all the things out of my diary for the next three months. So I'm like, oh, that would have been nice. Oh, that would. Have, I would have, you know, I bet Cambridge is lovely this time of year. I'll never know. Um, no, it's it's been really sad actually because as you say, I, I worked on difficult women since what I signed the contract in 2017. And it was all really exciting, like it'd gone in the bestseller list, I had my launch party, you know, everything was really amazing. I was looking forward to my sort of victory lap of, you know, telling wry anecdotes from it to grateful audiences across the nation. And then, no, no, it's not happened. And, you know, it's in, and physical bookshops have closed, so it's actually just harder for people to get their hands on a copy now. And Amazon is on a week delay of, of sending out anything. I don't know why Amazon has decided that my book is not an essential supply. I feel obviously quite slighted by that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's now just physically hard to buy books really so i would so please do cheer helen up by adding a copy of difficult women to your order of hand sanitizer <laughs> exactly um also joining us is former diplomat and foreign and commonwealth office mover and shaker arthur snell hi arthur where are you well I, i'm at home in uh, rural gloucestershire and i guess um people like me who live in the countryside probably have it a bit easier because at least we've got sort of space to move around in Right. Yes, it's it's uh, having a walk around Finsbury Park. I find um, without a, like a protective bubble around me is uh, is quite tricky. It's like playing Frogger. So you know, out here in in the sticks, it's we're all kind of returning to our inner survivalists, and I'm trying to work out which of the various sort of wild growing shrubs I can live off and that sort of thing. And you've had all this experience, obviously, experience as a as, as a as a diplomat. How does how does diplomacy function uh, working from home? Like how much, well, a lot of people are discovering that actually they don't need that business travel. They don't need that face-to-face -face meeting. They can do a hell of a lot uh, online. How much of, you know, of sort of serious diplomacy, how much does it benefit and rely on, um, you know, proper contact? Well, it, it's a very good question because for years um, people have been trying to sort of close down diplomats by saying, well, we don't need it in the age of the video conference. And obviously now we are in the permanent age of video conference. Um, 
obviously the the Brexit negotiations, I know I'm not supposed to use that word on this podcast, <laughs> but those have managed to continue um, in that kind of remote way. But uh, yeah, I suppose like so many other things, we may get to the end of this and maybe some countries will say, well, we don't need so many people posted in embassies overseas. But the basic idea is that, as I think we're all finding, human contact makes such a difference to the way you can interact with people. And, and that's just as true for diplomacy as it would be for business or anything else. Um, and Hungary passed a bill yesterday that appeared to give Orban uh, the virtual dictatorship he so plainly wanted. Um, this only puts Derbyshire police into perspective. Uh, what do you make of the many authoritarians who are using sort of COVID as a power grab? Is that something that you would have expected, that they would exploit this crisis? I suppose so. And I, th I think we're seeing two things. One is the, the sort of hungry model of, of just using it to award yourself huge powers, which, you know, we can imagine might take a long time to be unawarded. And then, of course, the other thing is the misinformation piece. So, you know, we're supposed to believe that Russia has almost no cases of COVID, even though uh, they've actually gone into lockdown and they're building new hospitals. So that's sort of a bit confusing. And even there in, in uh, you know, in the United States, I mean, uh, Donald Trump's got his own version of both the misinformation piece and at first not sure whether he wanted the extra powers. And I think what we're now seeing developing is a sort of favoritism where uh, blue states don't get the additional resources they need, but those red states that are loyal to Trump will probably be, uh, you know, showered with ventilators and face masks. Our special guest today is the Labour MP for Bristol North West and the first ever Darren elected to Parliament. It's Darren Jones. Hi there, how are you doing? How are you? I'm very good. I'm now no longer the only Darren, though. There's another Darren MP in the House of Commons, so my claim to fame is now historic. Did you, do you side-eye him on his first day? Do you know, I've not, I've not actually had the chance to say hi to him yet. I need to kind of hunt him down when we get back to Parliament at the end of the year. Former Darren Club. Um, the UK, I mean, British culture does seem to be a strange jumble of authoritarian and libertarian uh, instincts. Um, do you f do you worry that uh, that our government will find some of these emergency powers hard to give up? I mean, obviously, J Johnson is no uh, Victor Orban, but do, do do emergency powers can they become quite addictive for both government and and the police? I mean, there's a risk, yes, and there's two parts to your question there, which is government and then kind of enforcement arms of government. And when the COVID emergency bill was put before the House originally, at the time in which government was able to use these emergency powers was two years. Uh, many of us um, in the House of Commons started to get uncomfortable about that because under the Civil Contingencies Act, you normally require, I think it's a monthly renewal of emergency powers by Parliament. Now, evidently that wouldn't work in the situation if Parliament isn't able to sit and vote, perhaps. But what we were able to agree with government uh, following the usual channels um, uh, was that it's now a six-monthly uh, kind of review. So when we do get back to normal and we do get back to Parliament, um, I imagine we all want to see those emergency powers come to an end. And Parliament obviously has the authority to be able to make that case. Um, but as you say, you know, the Conservatives have got a very significant majority, so they would need to support it. But I'd be surprised if they if they didn't. Well, Parliament's gone into recess uh, for the next four weeks. But of course, MPs had to go into work in close proximity to colleagues while um, various other parts of the nation were shutting down. What was the atmosphere at Westminster like during, I suppose, those those last few days? Well, I wasn't actually there in the in the very final few days because, following the government advice accurately, my wife recorded a temperature of over thirty seven point eight, uh, and so I was in household self-isolation uh, for a period of 14 days, which officially ended yesterday. So I've gone from self-isolation to lockdown. Um, but I was there a few days in the run-up to that in the House of Commons. And it was obviously just much quieter. Um, and we were having to sit further apart from each other. We were having to kind of tag team a bit. So for, you know, from Bristol, you know, we would ask other colleagues to raise issues on our behalf if we weren't if we weren't there. And then we had this conversation for our select committees, you know, how are we going to hold the government to account and take evidence if we can't all sit next to each other in a committee room? And some of the committees have started doing video conferencing as a consequence. So it was a bit it was a bit kind of ghost townish uh, with some unknown um, answers to the questions that we're now trying to figure out, which is how do we is your, get is your household? Sorry, is your household okay now? 
Oh yeah, fine. She was just a bit hot. Right. Uh, so oh, okay. uh, ev- everyone is fine. We were very lucky, but uh, it was if you had a temperature and or a new persistent cough, it was the or word. Yeah. Uh, you need to stay at home for fourteen days. So we um, we followed that advice. And constituency uh, matters. You know, obviously surgeries uh, can't happen. So do you have? Do you do sort of video surgeries, or how do you deal with? Oh, no, so pretty much all of the services that I provide through my constituency office have continued. So we continue to provide surgery appointments. It's just that they're over the telephone uh, as opposed to Videocon mm. um, and, and they work perfectly well. And, you know, members of my team are able to dial in and and, and contribute in the normal way. Um, I normally do coffee mornings and pub politics and visit schools and those types of things. And we're doing all of those online. So I did a online tour of parliament for kids in my constituency on my facebook page which worked relatively well um and then took their questions uh and then i'm going to be doing a pub politics and i'll do a coffee morning as well um online so evidently people who aren't online can't take part uh, and so we we try to provide a telephone number for people to dial in but on the whole everything is kind of happening as it normally would it's just being done over the internet The corona crisis has already rendered the Conservatives' economic plans obsolete. In order to save the economy, Rishi Sunak is now spending like a drunken rab butler. But is this sudden embrace of interventionist big spending here to stay? Since his £30 billion budget and subsequent £330 billion of emergency business loans, Sunak has also intervened to help the self-employed, eventually. There may be more to come as the crisis deepens. Helen, we've seen huge amounts of money being pumped into the UK economy. Does this mean a sort of fundamental shift in the way our country is run like how how much is this a piece of elastic that's just going to snap back to its original uh, shape as soon as the crisis is over or are there going to be do you think there will be long-term changes I mean, I'm really wary about making grand sweeping predictions about, you know, things have changed, changed. <laughs> Go utterly. on, that's why you're here. But I think the thing that is really interesting is I would think, the, and, you know, the austerity argument was already looking pretty tatty around 2017. And if you remember, Theresa May said there's no magic money tree. And to which the obvious rejoinder was there was one that you needed the DUP to prop up your government. Uh, so what's that about? And, and the instincts of this government are much less austerian than the Cameron Osborne one. And also the other thing is that it has really exposed how brutally stripped back to the bone local authorities have been. You know, they lost... Um, some was it 60 pence in every pound or something? You know, they really had been stripped back to absolute bare, bare bones. But we relied on them, you know, and we now rely on them. And these are now the people who are supposed to be doing things like coordinating adult social care for, for vulnerable people. Or, you know, I, one of the mad things I was reading this morning is about the fact that because there's only, everyone's at home so much more, you know, the amount of rubbish that their generation has gone up. So councils having to cut back on recycling collections. Well, you know, sad for recycling, sad for the planet, but also sad for the fact that we need that fibre in order to turn it into new packaging. And actually, that's one of the w- weird efficiencies of the modern economy. It's going to be quite hard for us to keep putting things into new cardboard if we're not putting the old cardboard back into it. And that's purely about the fact that councils are having to prioritise what services they can possibly deliver in these circumstances. So I'm, I'm quite wary. I think one of the things that, as a personal grievance, was that, you know, having all these people suddenly finding out what the level of statutory sick pay was, what the level of um, universal credit was, the mad unfairness of the fact that universal credit, your first payment takes five weeks to come through which has always been incredibly punitive. And there was a bit of a learning curve, I think, for quite sharp-elbowed middle-class people about exactly how threadbare the welfare safety net really is. Seeing, seeing Alison Pearson discover that in real time on Twitter was, was quite a treat. Basically, as, long as, it, as soon as it affected her son, she was just like, hang on, this system is really unfair. Yeah, wow, it's really hard to live on this amount of money. Yes, yes, it is. It's, it's really miserable. But I, I mean, I'm still worried about the kind of assumptions that are baked into government policy, right? I live in a semi-detached house, which is, you know, it's got space for me and my husband. We both work in at home in different rooms. But, you know, for people who are in temporary accommodation, which is mouldy and horrible, or people living in tower blocks, you know, if these restrictions get harder, it's one of those things about who's in the room and what kind of lifestyles are represented, and which has always been a big feminist argument, right, that actually just just, you need to have a diversity of people's life experiences in among decision makers, or they assume that everybody has got you know a broadband connection, um, and that's one of the things that kind of slightly worries me. I hope the one thing I do hope will change is a massive revisiting of what we consider to be infrastructure. 
So the Labour Party's free broadband policy didn't have the best success during the election, but there is now a case that internet access is not exactly a human right, but it is fundamental to now being a citizen in in Britain in 2020. That, you know, access to childcare is infrastructure. It is what allows people to do their jobs. You know, a lot of dads are probably discovering, and some mums too, I'm sure, but a lot of discovering exactly how hard it is to juggle work and, and raising a family. And, and all that kind of stuff about what really counts as, as, as stuff that it is worth borrowing to invest in, to go back to kind of those new labour arguments. I hope those arguments will become easier to make because there has been, in my opinion, quite a lot of self-defeating austerity, um, where things that look like a saving actually end up having huge knock-on consequences that ended up costing more money or generating huge amounts of human misery. And I think I'd like to think we'd be able to have slightly more sensible conversations that are more than, you know, Labour just wants to turn the money taps on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Darren, a Tory source was quoted uh, earlier this month as saying, we'll find ourselves implementing most of Jeremy Corbyn's programme. Corbyn has been pretty outspoken on his way out of the job as leader, claiming that he was right all along on spending and investment. Um, And some people are kind of saying, ha-ha, well, you know, here's everyone's a socialist in a crisis. Do you think it is accurate to describe these kind of emergency measures and big state interventions as socialist, that anything which involves the state taking a big role is a kind of socialism. But partly, yes. And, you know, the argument that we've long been making in the Labour Party is that, you know, a decade of austerity um, has undermined the fabric of our of our public service and that a strong public service, whether it's about childcare and education or, or health or, or, or homes or support for people when they need it, is part of what it means to be British. You know, the post-war consensus was that we all chipped in so that collectively when those that need a hand are able to have it. And we've seen in a massive way uh, during this pandemic um, that those uh, those kind of basic assumptions just don't really hadn't really existed uh, for very long because the fabric was cut so thin, whether that was council's abilities to respond to capacity within the health service, available numbers of clinical staff, or as you said just now, the support that people can get when they um, deserve a hand from the state. Of course, it's socialist because, of course, you're putting people before profit. The government's had to put lives before livelihoods. Um, and, and that's a good thing. That's what it should be doing. The question now, though, is out of the back end of this emergency, what does that mean in terms of rebuilding the British economy and the British public sector in, for a country that we want to live in in the future? And what changes would you like to say? I mean, I, I, fair point Helen made about, you know, it's, it's impossible to make predictions, but you can certainly almost sort of have a, have a wish list. We've been hearing a lot about universal basic income, which we discussed on the podcast recently. Uh, Helen mentioned childcare. Other people have mentioned the shorter working week. You know, a lot of these ideas, some of which were considered, you know, rather, you know, ahead of their time in the, in the last Labour manifesto and just too soon for people. And now people are talking about, well, maybe this will be, you know, one of the outcomes. What would you prioritise? Well, first of all, it's just nice that we're able to have this debate. I mean, a lot of the energy in the Labour Party in recent years has been because we've started to have these debates about big ideas, right? But the Conservatives uh, and, and Parliament, as a consequence, hasn't really wanted to talk about that. It's just been about continuing with austerity, maintaining the status quo. There's not been a a debate about reform. Uh, One of my hopes off the back of this pandemic is that when we get back to normal, uh, there is going to be this debate around big ideas about what we want the future of our country to look like and how we want to uh, run it. Now, all of us have different views on that, which is why the debate is important. I don't think, I've not been persuaded that universal basic income is the right answer, but I do believe that universal state-provided childcare in some form is absolutely imperative. Now we're in a modern economy where mums and dads or both parents or single parents want to be able to go out to work and to contribute to our economic uh, productivity. Um, So uh, my hope is that when we get back, we're not just going to kind of spring back to the debate where we say, okay, that was just because we had a pandemic, but we can start to have a real debate about what what we want the country to be and that the public demand that of us. Mm. Arthur, do you think Sinek had other options. It doesn't seem to me that there is a free market libertarian solution to a pandemic triggered recession. Um, was, was he just doing what anyone would do? I, I think he pretty much was. And it's interesting to see how, you know, there was lots of talk about what Denmark was offering its workers who are furloughed and what, you know, other countries that we might think of as 
generically slightly to the left of where Britain is, and, and we've ended up pretty much in the same place. And I suppose the, the interesting issue here is, you know, lots of people make the comparison to the Second World War and the sort of mobilisation. But of course, the thing that we have is we're demobilising everybody. You know, we don't want loads of people to join the army or go or even, you know, to, to, to enter some sort of productive work. I mean, there may be jobs creating ventilators, but I don't imagine there's going to be many of them. So we have this odd situation where we're trying to get people to do nothing. Uh, and, and clearly, economically, that's, that's a nightmare for, for, for any, uh, any system. Well, I mean, another difference where people talk about 1945 and, and, you know, the effect that the war had on public appetite for change was, of course, there was an election and it was a Labour government that, uh, that was brought to power and en- enacted those changes. We've got a Conservative uh, administration for the foreseeable future. And, you know, unless for some reason there's, a, there's an early election. So really any appetite for change would have to come from the Tory party, which generally rails against the nanny state. Um, we've, Darren talked about things uh, that, that we would like to see change. Do you think that there are things that would be so uh, normalised, that there would be such public enthusiasm for, that even the sort of ideologically... Um, ideological conservatives would sort of have to concede on on this or that reform well i i think the interesting question and the the thing that we're going to you know find out in the coming months is a situation with unemployment because ultimately the the austerity era has has happened whilst keeping unemployment low now obviously there's a lot of in work poverty there's lots of people in very insecure employment but, but fundamentally, a, a very small number of British people are unemployed. Um, but what we're going to see now is huge amounts of unemployment. Obviously, lots of businesses have ceased to function. And even with all the different bits of sort of government support and, and loans and, and, you know, rent holidays and all the rest of it, it's clear that lots of businesses won't, won't come out the other end of this period. So there will be a lot of unemployed people. And then there's a question... What's going to happen with them? You know, not that long ago, the state employed many more people. And I'm not, I'm not talking about back in the 70s, just even in the, the, the new Labour era. You know, there were many more people working in government, in local government in, and in um, sort of, you know, wider government service type activities. So I do think that's going to be the big question. And of course, we do have this full parliamentary term, but how the Tory government deals with high unemployment, it's going to be a bit like the early 80s, I guess. Well, think, thinking ahead, Helen, I just wanted to ask before we move on, um, Donald Trump was criticised uh, for saying we don't want the cure to be worse than the problem. Obviously, this is because it's, it's, it's Donald Trump um, and he's not really interested in the physical and mental health of ordinary people in the long run um, because he's a sociopath. But imagine that it's not a sociopath saying this. Um, Right now, there is not a choice. But what do you think some quite difficult calculations will be made in the, in the coming months regarding how quickly you can get the economy back and into action, even if there is some sort of health risk? Yeah, right I now, can... it seems quite simple. Yeah, I've been talking about this with my um, Atlantic colleagues. Obviously, they know the American situation much better than I do. But I think there is a point there of saying, just because it's Donald Trump saying it, and it's become this kind of American meme now, right, that the cure could be worse than the disease, doesn't mean that actually we shouldn't keep in mind the fact that this is a trade-off. We've currently, you know, frozen the economy in order to save lives. But freezing the economy itself does not come without human costs. One of the reasons the government was said it was you know, slow to impose lockdown measures is it's worried about fundamentally old people dying of neglect. You know, it's, it's one worried about the people who won't pick up the stuff from their, their doorstep and won't get discovered for a couple of days. And, and you know, it, we've seen that in, in Spain and Italy, that there have been those kind of problems exactly along those lines. Ditto, we know all the problems about just poverty, the way that that kills people, that it reduces their life outcomes. You know, I'm fascinated by this weird study that we're conducting now of, of, of lots of people who will drastically reduce the number of steps they're taking a day. I would imagine probably drastically, if I'm anything to go by, increasing the amount of junk food that they're eating every day. You know, we're gonna, we are putting people into quite unhealthy lifestyles. We're also doing things like putting people's chemotherapy on hold. Um, when I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about feminism and coronavirus, we talked about uh, previous outbreaks, um, things like Zika and, and Ebola, 
and you know in Sierra Leone where she's got terrible maternal maternal mortality rates anyway more women died from died in childbirth and died from Ebola you know there are other things going on and as soon as you tilt your entire health service towards answering one problem then other things end up getting missed and I think when you look at what's happening uh, less so here we've already got a midwife shortage and that's being exacerbated now by people being moved around you know there are hospitals where women are being asked to give birth on their own I think that's a pretty traumatic thing to being to be asked to do but in America you know America has already got the kind of rates of maternal mortality that are for a developed world country incredibly high and black women twice as likely to die in childbirth as white women so there's obviously something going on about service provision and racism and, and poverty and that's my my concern is that we you know just as people are very uh, find it very hard intuitively to understand probability and understand the idea that things aren't certain and actually you can't be told how long the lockdown will last we've also got to keep in mind the idea that at the the lockdown is a trade-off and yeah, as you say, at the moment, the trade-off looks worth it. But we will find out more and more, simply because no one has ever done this before, about all the other things that are being, that it, the, the other half of the trade-off. And those, you know, that's going to become a really horrible thing for any government, any opposition to have to deal with. Because people will say, well, why would you let anyone die? And that's not the choice that's on offer here. You know, people are going to die. It's, it's which people and when and how many of them. The Labour leadership race was meant to be the big political story of early 2020, and then something else happened. Keir Starmer is seemingly on course for coronation, albeit a subdued one, on Saturday, and reports emerged over the weekend that he is planning a scorched-earth removal of the Corbynite left. What will a Starmer-led Labour Party look like? And with the Conservatives enjoying, admittedly in strange circumstances, a 26% lead, the government's currently at 54% in the polls, what should Labour be doing in this time of crisis? Darren, uh, you're back in Keir Starmer. Um, what, this is not how he expected to, uh, you know, expected to come, come to the leadership. What do you think his priorities will be? Well, I mean, Keir will have procedural priorities in terms of, you know, setting up his office and dealing with the shadow cabinet and all of all of that business. But his overriding priority will be twofold. Firstly, it will be showing the public that at times of national emergency, we can come together in Parliament to do what is needed to put the country and people first. Um, and I think the government should be doing more on that um, as well. And then secondly, it's about saying that we still have to provide opposition to the government that is uh, fair and balanced and holding them to account for the decisions that they're taking and for the way in which they're supporting people and the economy. And as we move out of the lockdown period of pandemic, the way in which the government starts to turn off the taps of emergency support and decides how best to stimulate the economy and fund our public services and support individuals to recover from what will be a very deep amount of economic damage is absolutely crucial. Uh, and we will, of course, be holding the government to account on a daily basis on that task. Is that really sort of therefore like a, a tonal challenge? Because that kind of the slightly, you know, the PMQ's atmosphere of zingers and, and sometimes sort of open contempt uh, for the government. I mean, that's not that's not going to uh, go down well. So do you, is, it, is it how much of a political challenge is it to hold the government to account while still seeming like, you know, you're sort of pulling in the same direction for the, you know, for the good of the country and you're not just trying to score points? I, I think it's just about... Uh, you know, professional leadership, which I'm confident Keir is perfectly able to uh, offer. Keir is someone that's not going to try to score cheap political points, but he will forensically hold the government to account based on the evidence. Uh, and, you know, we've seen in countries like New Zealand, um, where uh, the governing Labour Party there has put forward a kind of super select committee with the leader of the opposition as its chair in order to hold the government to account during this period of pandemic politics. Uh, I know there's been discussions of kind of governments of national unity and things in the UK, but at the moment, you know, we're working either through the usual channels um, or minister to minister. Um, I think there needs to be more of an open discussion where you can uh, hold the government to account and take evidence and understand the basis of decisions and continue to raise the issues that our constituents and people across the country are asking. Do you take seriously or even with enthusiasm this talk of a unity government or, you know, bringing 
Starmer into into it in some in some role? So I think personally, I don't think that a unity government is required. But what I do think is required is that in trying to achieve political consensus on how to respond to this issue, you need the breadth of political voices around the table. Um, And in order to do that, uh, you could have politicians invited to uh, certain government meetings and given a seat and a voice around the table. Uh, I know that Matt Hancock and Jonathan Ashworth have been working very closely together, for example. Or you could adopt this New Zealand approach with a select committee, which is made up with the opposition leadership holding the government to account. There are different ways in which you can do it, but you can't you can't just expect uh, opposition parties to be the receivers receivers of information from the government. They need to be part of the conversation. But whether that requires a full unity government or not, I'm 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 not so sure. Arthur, what's your take? We've we've heard there are theories. Is, is uh, Starmer could be a Tony Blair, a Neil Kinnock, an Ed Miliband, or presumably uh, now we're in a time of crisis with rumours of unity government, uh, a Clement Attlee. Well, if you had to pick one, I suppose you might go for Attlee. I mean, I think uh, what Starmer has very clearly is you know he's a very serious, very competent, highly intelligent kind of guy, and. Um, as it happens, when he was a director of public prosecutions, I had a little bit to do with him because the Crown Prosecution Service was doing a lot of work overseas to help countries that had uh, underperforming uh, sort of prosecutorial systems to, to help them improve. And so I was involved with some of that work. And And I can echo what everyone else says, that he's very impressive, knows what he's doing, very serious and all the rest of it. And I suppose... Um, you know, the contrast between that and the current prime minister is pretty obvious. Um, and also, you know, the, the coronavirus thing shows us how, you know, immense crises and, you know, completely unpredictable and frankly terrifying things can happen. And I would imagine that that uh, reinforces the attraction of someone like Starmer, who does present, you know, this air of competence. He's not the kind of person who's going to casually say, oh, this will all be over in 12 weeks and I shook hands with everyone. Um, now, that's that's on the sort of plus side for him. But I suppose, you know, his big challenge, and, and you can see this at the moment in the United States, no one is hearing from Joe Biden because in a crisis, everyone looks at the leader. So I think Starmer's big challenge, going back to some of the things that Darren was talking about, is what, what is the role of the leader of the opposition when ultimately we just need our government to be getting on with governing. Well, Darren, when when things do return to uh, whatever we consider normal, um, the road to power for Labour um, might look even more sort of complicated. It was looking pretty pretty arduous already. Um, but if, for example, the Tories do stick to, to higher spending and investment, you know, uh, if austerity truly is over because of coronavirus... Um, that's another line of that would be a, a line of attack gone. Um, I suppose where do where do you see uh, Labour's route back to number ten? I mean, it's a massive existential question for you to answer in just a couple of minutes, if you will. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Here, here's the answer. Here's the answer. No. Uh, well, look, you know, politics changes, doesn't it? And we don't know yet fully what the British public expectation is going to be of us as politicians at the end of this pandemic. What we do know is that, you know, the principles which underline the very purpose of the Labour Party are are, are static and that of the Tories on the whole as well too. And, you know, this whole language in the media about Keir's kind of scorched earth strategy and banishing, I just just think is, is, is melodramatic. What Keir is doing is, I think, making decisions based on merit. He wants the best people, the best team of people, because we have an enormous job to do, not just in holding the government to account um, and campaigning for the changes that we'd like to see across the country, but in putting our case to the public. And, you know, you can spend a lot of time thinking about demographics and changing voting intention and identities and the constituency route back to power. And of course, you know, we saw last week the government sign off on the boundary changes that will come through now assumedly automatically uh, before the next election, which gives an, an extra seat advantage to the Conservatives. But the point for the Labour Party is, yes, there's there's 
there's a, there's a role for that. But ultimately, you've got to speak to the whole country. You've got to speak to people old and young, rich and poor, Scotland, Wales, South, London, everywhere, because you are a party of government. That's what we are, the Labour Party. Uh, and we've got to speak to the whole country. So uh, I'm still confident that we're going to be able to make a, a, a credible and important case uh, to the public. Uh, and we're going to have to wait and see how the government deal with the post-pandemic period. I don't believe the Conservatives ultimately will make the right decisions that put people and our public services and the sustainability of our planet ahead of traditional Conservative ideology. And I do think that people will want a more Labour-based answer for the future than a Conservative one. How do you think the shadow cabinet will, will, will shape up? Is there anybody you think is a kind of nailed on certainty? So I, I don't know is the short answer. You know, it's for Keir to decide how to how to how to put a shadow cabinet together. The one thing I do know is that uh, we we have an enormous breadth of talent from people who I think can be hugely inspiring. And given uh, the opportunity to work from the front bench, will be really important for Labour's case over the, the coming years. I would ultimately um, it's Keir's decision. As I say, he will appoint. Uh, I hope based on merit. So I think we'll start to see a very credible, competent, intelligent, thoughtful. Uh, shadow cabinet and also you know these labels of Blairite and Corbynite and whatever else I mean Keir's made his positions very clear on that he doesn't want the name of any former leader tattooed on his forehead he will be a Keir Starmer leader of the Labour Party and ultimately all of us are part of the Labour movement so uh, I'll look forward to seeing who he well Helen you're in a slightly you're in a slightly safer position to just to just (laughs) wade in there with a massive prediction so um yeah who, who do you expect who's in who's out I do agree with Darren that there is a lot of untapped potential. And actually, some of the people who were in, you know, Corbyn's first pre-chicken coup um, shadow cabinet, you know, but there aren't that many people who would simply refuse to serve under him. So he has got, I mean, the Labour Party's a much reduced force in Parliament these days, but he has got a lot of options. Rachel Reeves is incredibly credible. She wrote a great book about women of Westminster. So she's steeped in parliamentary history as well as being numerate, which obviously helps. Um... Jonathan Reynolds has been tipped by quite a lot of people, which I personally would support because he does lovely Christmas cards that feature his many, many adorable children and his many adorable dogs. Uh, and if that's not a reason to put someone in the shadow cabinet, I don't know what is. Um, Thangam Debonair, I think, is someone who's really interesting. I'd be interested to see her. She came in, uh, she's got a whopping great majority in Bristol West, um, came into Parliament 2015 immediately had to go and get chemotherapy um uh, and then but so has kind of i think her uh, which i think slowed down what otherwise would have been a much more meteoric rise um so i'd love to see her in there annalise dodds people always talk about um uh, tracy brabin i think is probably i would i'd say someone else i would expect to see on that front bench but the, the kind of more interesting question is how many enemies do you make by you know, is it time for Richard Bergen to pick up his carriage clock and uh, and mm. depart into the sunset, right? Um, that's would be, that's a more miss, interesting question. I would miss You'd him. You'd miss him. Yeah, I would miss him miss just him. For, for satirical purposes. But, but that is the problem, is the more people that you've hoof yeah. out of the shadow cabinet, the more people sit fuming on the on the back benches, you know, plotting their revenge against you. So that's that's always a tough balance to strike as a new leader. Stamp your authority, but try not to create too many enemies. The national outpouring of affection for the NHS and the anger that frontline workers are not receiving the personal protection equipment they need has shone a spotlight on the lack of investment over the past 10 years. Meanwhile, it's emerged that the government were warned in 2016 that the NHS would be overwhelmed in the event of a severe pandemic, but the findings of the three-day dry-run exercise Cygnus were deemed too sensitive for public eyes and not acted upon. What will the corona emergency mean for the future of the NHS? Arthur, you've written an article on this recently. Um... It seems like a shocking dereliction of duty that the government knew about this risk and then simply did not invest in ventilators and contingency measures. Um, what's, the, what's the kind way of looking at that decision? Uh, well, I'll, I'll do my best. I, I, I think the, the kindest thing we can say is that actually all of us don't like to pay too much tax and uh, we as a country per capita invest less in health than almost any other wealthy country and therefore you get what you pay for and, and that's the kind kindest way of putting it uh, the perhaps slightly more kind of political answer is that um, public health has always been a bit of a sort of Cinderella element of the health service and has been persistently underfunded well this also it's not just the NHS because because much of the responsibility of public health was given to to, to the local authorities um, 
under the coalition whose budgets were sort of then, then slashed to the bone. So it's sort of, it, there are a lot of chickens coming home to roost here. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and that's a key point. Yeah. So as you said, in, in 2013, public health was, um, was taken out of the sort of core NHS and put under local authorities. And as we all know, and in fact, Helen referred to it earlier, local authorities' budgets have been pared right back to the bone. And what you saw was quite a lot of local authorities using the money they'd been given for public health to pay for other things in desperation. I'm not going to necessarily criticise them for doing that. Um, and so uh, it, it's also easier to cut the budget when it's a local authority budget rather than an NHS budget because it gets a lot less attention. So there's been this persistent uh, sort of chipping away and there's been this idea somehow that redundancy and, and sort of having resources in reserve is almost a failing. You know, we, we've been through a period where we think we're, we're very clever in this country because every single hospital bed is occupied and there's no redundancy there, which, of course, is fine until you have something like this. Well, if I can just jump in there, Arthur, that's exactly what my, I wrote last week in the um, Atlantic. I entirely agree with you. I went and found the clinical guidelines which said you know, you should aim for 85% bed occupancy. Because what happens over that is that you just get, you get surges, particularly from winter flu, and you end up having to get either private beds or transfer people to another hospital trust, both of which incur costs. So this thing that, you know, the idea of having pretty much full occupancy, which we did coming into the flu season last year, according to the King's Fund, looks really good on the outside, looks like, hooray, you know, all, all this stuff isn't sitting around empty. But it leaves you very badly exposed when, you know, when things just go slightly, um, slightly over the top, never mind a full-blown pandemic. And also it leads to things like, you know, more hospital infections, more hospital-acquired infections. So again, it's one of those situations in which you think you feel very clever by having done this very, you know, big, exciting headline thing. And you don't see all the little costs that knock on along the way. And it's a kind of, I'm obsessed with this idea, you know, the, the tyranny of metrics, right? Because whatever you measure, you end up deforming everything around too. And, and how do you actually quantify all the other things that it, that it causes? We're really bad at that in modelling because it's just too complicated. Darren, where, what do you think has been the government's greatest sort of failing regarding the NHS and, and sort of preparations for something like this? What What's the... What's the thing that makes you think, you know, this, this was a missed opportunity, this was a real dereliction of duty? The, the, the one issue that's come to light, which um, really causes me concern, was the stress testing um, that had been done on the NHS's capacity to deal with a pandemic. Um, because the very point of stress testing is that you understand where the fractures are and then you fix them so that when the thing actually happens, you're prepared to do it. Um, whereas we've seen... Uh, over the last few days that the stress testing for pandemic response uh, in the health service highlighted an issue for example of a lack of ventilators and i just thought you know what is the point of stress testing if you then don't put measures in place to deal with it and that is a failure of government uh, the government should have responded to the findings of that stress testing and it didn't and that put us in a much more difficult position when the pandemic actually arrived so uh, that is one particular issue which um which i just think is unacceptable and needs to be the government needs to be held to account on well, the government's sending mixed messages about this EU ventilator scheme. Uh, one way they said they chose to opt out. The next, it turns out they, they missed an email, which we've, we've all done. Um, Michael Gove made the sort of Brexity claim that there's nothing we can't do as an independent nation. We don't need any of those EU ventilators. What's the, is, is there a kind of, what's the real story here? Is, does, it, does this strike you as a kind of, like, again, another kind of, sort of scandalous error? Is it, is it sort of Brexity ideology getting in the way or just good old-fashioned forgot to check my inbox uh, incompetence. I mean, I, I don't know whether an email was missed or, or, or not, but the one thing that this whole story um, uh, brings to mind for me has been the lack of global leadership in response to this pandemic. I mean, you look at previous pandemics, whether they're uh, economic or, or health related, and there has been global leadership, primarily from the United States and through the G7 or the G20. Uh, British prime ministers in the past have made a very important role, Gordon, obviously, in the 2008 financial crash. But there's been global collaboration, global solidarity, global leadership in dealing with global problems. And whether it was President Trump trying to buy the vaccine company off of Germany to make vaccines only for the United States, or whether it's Britain saying, well, I'm sorry, Europe, we're fine. We don't want to take part in helping each other out. I think all of that is just deeply sad. And Britain has for for very, very long time, you know, 
put itself out as a country that provides global leadership and supports others. And if we're going to be going down this track where we just say, no, we're fine as we are, then I think that that's a deep concern for us. Arthur, going back to you, um, there's this huge amount of affection and support for the NHS now and and real focus um, on where people feel that it has been let down. Um, It will still, it's not a sort of perfect organization it still will need reform at various points in the in the future it will need to adapt it changes but does this change you think the whole the politics of the nhs in the long term that that when people when governments do want to make changes whether that be labor or conservatives they're going to have to be very um careful that it has become people have been reminded how much they cherish this institution i I think you're right and Obviously, you know, that won't last forever, but there's clearly going to be quite a prolonged period in which it would be very, very difficult for a government to sort of take on the NHS. If we think back to the junior doctor strike uh, at that time, it was possible for the government, with some measure of success, to sort of demonise the junior doctors and, and accuse them of being selfish and irresponsible. Uh, I think it's going to be very hard, hard to do that. And I also think... Uh, coming, coming back to the issue of the sort of public health and, and certain areas of the NHS that, that have been, or of the wider health system, have been overlooked. I think that's that's going to change. I mean, I, I speak with a little bit of personal knowledge here. My wife is a public health doctor, and, and it's, I think, you know, for years, no one was really sure what epidemiology was and why it was important. And now, of course, everybody on Twitter is an expert. So uh, hopefully, the, the outcome of that will, will be that, you know, people will look at public health and and some of the more preventative medicine and think, oh, actually, this is something we should be investing in. And they'll want politicians to be explaining to them what their plans for public health are. Whereas only a year ago, you know, these were very, very uh, unknown and kind of bur- deep buried policy areas. Well, at least if the NHS does need to recruit an army of armchair epidemiologists, they're out there. We've got the numbers. Absolutely. There's no shortage. Well, finally, the, um, there's going to be another clap for the carers at 8pm this Thursday. Um, there was some applause shaming last week, which was the kind of thing that made me feel that perhaps Twitter, politics Twitter, was getting back to normal. Um, the idea that people shouldn't be allowed to cheer for the NHS if, if they'd voted Tory. Um, does, that sort of expo- does that sort of expose that, that kind of weird... Um, a place that the NHS plays in our lives is that everybody sort of everybody loves it, but some people don't just don't want to think about it as, as as there being any politics involved. It's just like being for, you know, for sunshine or laughter. That does slightly worry me when we talk about the NHS that there are definitely things that you would want to reform about it. That you do have to have serious conversations sometimes about whether or not you know, hospital provision would be better consolidated because actually people's outcomes are better when, you know, someone becomes a centre of excellence for doing a particular thing. But at at a constituency level, that stuff is incredibly unpopular. And my my worry is that, again, yeah, it is exactly that smothering with love thing. It means that people think that any change to the NHS is inevitably a a bad one, simply because, you know, not unreasonably, having lived through things like the, you know, Lansley reorganisation that basically nobody understood. Um, that you would be innately suspicious of change in the NHS, but we could sort of love it into a standstill where it then actually cannot cope and can't change and be flexible enough to to adapt to the way that healthcare needs are changing. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. Uh, We're all still stuck at home, um, reading nothing but 50 TV shows you must stream. Uh, so what music, TV, books, or even podcasts will take our minds elsewhere? Uh, Darren, you're a guest. Um, what what's, what takes you to your happy place? Well, I have to say, without trying to play my tiny violin, uh, being locked down means I actually get to watch TV, whereas normally, normally I don't get much time to do it. And that's reason that's the reason why i'm slightly behind the curve in my answer here but at the moment i can't go a day without trying to get the next episode of the stranger on netflix um and i don't yet know what cats is going to do uh and i know that many many people around the country do so please don't tell me um but that's my kind of daily uh daily escape right now good stuff arthur how about you well i am at the sort of start of this lockdown i thought what i need to do is read one of those books that you can never get to the end of normally. So I pulled out Tristram Shandy, which for those who aren't, yes. aren't familiar is a kind of 
Well, bizarre, that's God level. <laughs> bizarre 18th century fake autobiography where the, the person doesn't even get born until about halfway through the book. Um, and, and in that, the, the writer observes that he's writing it more slowly than he's living his own life. So he's worried he'll never get to the end. And I've realised that I've been trying to read this book for such a large proportion of my life that it's very unlikely I'll finish it before I die. So that's going to be an interesting thing to find out. Um, Arthur, if I can recommend, Martin Rosen did an illustrated version of it, which is ab- oh, absolutely brilliant as a graphic novel. And you know the big grand- the big phallic grandfather clock that, um, that his father uses? Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, it's really quite the illustration. I can't, and and the, um, the Michael Winterbottom film, A Cock and Bull Story, is really fun as well. If you, if you, if you bail out... Then, um, like, there is a meta version of a film of Tristram Shandy with Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan to, out there waiting for you. That's my fallback option. Yeah. Well, literally above my desk is a half-finished copy of Gravity's Rainbow, but I fear that even a pandemic will not get me through the second half. Um, Helen, what about you? Well, I just finished David Epstein's Range, which is the power of generalists in a specialised world, um, which was my sort of salve to the fact that I haven't as yet written um, King Lear or Macbeth or Antony and Cleopatra, but have instead sort of spent my career doing random you know, bits and pieces of stuff elsewhere. And I needed someone to tell me that that was, a, that was an OK life path. And apparently it absolutely is. So um, I highly recommend that. And I'm about to start on um, Break a Leg by Jenny Landreth, which is about amateur theatre. And you know, well, you know how much I love theatre, Dorian, um, and then there's going to be none of it for, for quite some time. So I'm going, to, I'm going to read that instead and pretend that I'm, you know, watching people swear at each other in German, um, you know, because I miss that. Well, similarly, in the absence of live music or actually getting to uh, talk to any musicians face to face, I did a, a, an article about music, the best music podcasts. And, um, and so I just would recommend the kind of the really sort of the meaty, thoughtful, immersive narratives. There's Slow Burn Season 3, which is about Biggie and Tupac, and there's one called Dolly Parton's America, and obviously they're both on iTunes Store and wherever you get your, your podcasts. But it's, it's good because it's got that storytelling quality, um, and it just means that it just makes me miss um, the kind of the hustle and bustle of normal music life. That's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks very much to our panel, Helen Lewis... Hello. Goodbye. Arthur Snell. Goodbye. Thank you. Arthur Snell, thank you, Arthur. And thanks, Darren Jones. Thanks so much. We'll be back next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you next week. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Hannah Lewis and Arthur Snell. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. And the producer is Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.